Uh, good morning. I am so excited to be back here with y'all today, and I can honestly say that I have been looking forward to this day since last fall when I was here introducing the Psalms. And that is not because I was anxious to get through that book. Um, it's because it was another opportunity to be here with you. Some of you may know that God had plans for my family this year that kept me from being a part of weekly Bible study. Uh, and, but he graciously provided a way for me to continue to do the introductions. And Lord willing, I'm going to be back next year. And I am so grateful. But it's given me a different perspective. And to that end, I just want to encourage you. Do not take this time for granted. The ability to come together with sisters in Christ and dig into the word is invaluable, and I promise you it will be profitable. God says that his word does not return void. He delights when his people come together, and I believe that he wants us as women to dig into his word, to know his word, and to let it nourish us. So that's just a little charge uh, from me finish well. I'm going to be praying that I know we only have six weeks left. These are two small books. They are not small in content. Uh, so I'm just going to be praying for you that you finish well, and I know that he, he will be pleased and he will glorify that. So with that said, let's pause for a second and begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for this opportunity. I do not take this for granted. I know that it is a gift that you... Um, have a church for us that, that places an importance on women coming together, Lord, that believes that women should know your word and be knit together in your word. And I personally appreciate the opportunities that you have given me to be a part of it. And I pray that you would use this time to speak through me. I pray that you would help the words that come out of my mouth make sense. Where there's confusion or error, I pray you would block it from their minds, Lord. I, I pray that truth is spoken here, and Lord, may you be glorified in the, the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. So, I was particularly excited because this is the first time that I have introduced a New Testament book. And while much of today is going to be focused on Colossians, we're going to talk a little bit about Philemon as well. One of the sweet things to come out of my research has been to see just how connected these two books are. Both are Pauline epistles, and all that means is they were letters written by Paul. Colossians was written to the church at Colossae, and Philemon was written to a single man named Philemon who just happened to be a Colossian. And I'm going to show you later how we know that. Timothy is mentioned in the greetings of both letters. And while it's possible that Timothy acted as a secretary or helped compose the letter in some way, Paul is the credited author. Scholars agree that these two letters were written about the same time and were actually delivered together. As I mentioned, Philemon was a resident of Colossae, so it makes sense that they would be delivered at the same time. But we also see that Paul includes greetings from a list of companions in both letters that are almost identical. So that helps us understand the timing of these two letters. We know from Scripture that Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon while in jail, there are numerous references to that in both letters. Due to various historical factors, the scholars that I read believe he wrote during his imprisonment in Rome. We aren't specifically told where he was during the writing of these letters. But in both, Paul mentions that he was able to receive visitors. Acts chapter 28, verses 28 through 31, tells us that during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, he was actually under house arrest 
And while there, he specifically says he was able to receive visitors and even proclaim the gospel to them. So these factors line up with what we read in Colossians and Philemon. And this is just kind of a side fact that I found interesting. But most scholars actually think Ephesians was written at the same time as well. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. One of them being there's some theological overlap between Colossians and Ephesians. The city of Ephesus and Colossae are actually in the same region. And perhaps most compelling, both Ephesians and Colossians uh, mentioned that the deliverer of the letter was a man named Tychicus. So what is the city of Colossae? Well, Colossae is in modern-day Turkey. And at the time of Paul's writing, it was part of the Roman Empire in the region of Asia Minor called Phrygia. It's in an area known as the Lycus River Valley and was part of a trio of sister cities that included Laodicea and Hierapolis. The three cities, which all specialized in textiles, were important stops along a prominent trade route. Colossae was known especially for its wool. And as part of the Roman Empire and being along a trade route, the area would have had a diverse population of backgrounds and faiths. We know from historical sources that a massive earthquake devastated the area in the early 60s AD. So considering that event in its history, combined with the timeline of Paul's Roman imprisonment, most scholars put the date of these two letters between 60 and 62 AD. In chapter 1 of Colossians, we learn that Paul is writing to the church of Colossae in response to what he's learned from a man named Epaphras. Reading the text, we know that Epaphras was a leader in the church in Colossae and perhaps even the founder of the church there. So as I mentioned, there are many names mentioned in both Colossians and Philemon, and Epaphras is one of those. But it's in verse 23 of Philemon that we learn that Epaphras was in prison with Paul when he wrote the letter. Now, there are some that say that Epaphras was visiting Paul, not that he was a fellow prisoner. And again, that's plausible if he wrote during Paul's imprisonment in Rome because of the freedoms that he was allowed during that time. But regardless of how Epaphras came to be with Paul, it was at this time that he shares with Paul wonderful things about what's happening in the church at Colossae. Paul opens the book with these encouraging words about what he's heard going on, their, love, their faith in Jesus, their love for the saints, and the fruit resulting from the gospel among them. However, Epaphras also told Paul about some concerns he had regarding a philosophy, an empty deceit, as it's called in Colossians 2.8. And it's this philosophy that's becoming popular around Colossae that has Epaphras concerned. Paul's main purpose in writing the letter is to remind the church what they know to be true, to tell them to remain faithful to what he calls in Colossians 1.5, this word of truth, and to exhort them to live a life in accordance with this truth. So what is this philosophy and empty deceit that Paul's warning against? He never names it, and many scholars have debated it. You might have even heard some mysteriously refer to it as the Colossians heresy. I'm going to argue that it doesn't really matter for us what it is. You can go read people much smarter than me, argue whether it's Gnosticism, Jewish mysticism, or some other influential, influential philosophy or religion of the day. By focusing on this specific ideology that Paul wrote about to the Colossians, my concern is that we're going to run the risk of applying this letter only to the Colossians. But we know that God's word is alive and active and applicable to us today. So instead, I want us to read this letter 
and think about how we can apply it to our own life. I mentioned that Colossae was filled with diverse ideas in its day, and the same is true for us. And just as in biblical times, it's easy for us to take different ideologies that tickle our ears and try to merge them or make them work with Christianity. The result is a religion of our own design. And if you were with us last year when we studied Hosea, you might remember that there's a word for this fusing of differing beliefs. It's syncretism, and God hates it. In fact, the imagery he used for it in Hosea was a faithless whore. That's harsh. Paul is calling the church to stand in truth and reject anything beyond or added to that truth. We know that false ideologies and teachers will come, that they are, in fact, in our world today. Scripture is full of warnings about that. False teachers that might tickle our ears with this beautiful music and imagery that stirs up all kinds of emotions in us. They might say things that just seem more palatable to us or, you know, even make us think, I, that feels good, and I, I, think, I think I'm going to believe that too. But all the while, these false ideologies and teachings promote ideas that are in direct opposition to the Word of God. And that is why Colossians is for us, to remind us what is true, to reject anything in opposition to that truth, and to live a life in accordance to that truth. So how does Paul teach us this? Well, I'm going to suggest that our main themes show us how that happens. So if you would, please turn with me to page 9 in your notebooks. <laughs> and I know that I say this every time, but just in case there are some people that are new, let me talk a little bit about those themes. So the teachers that do the study meet over the summer to create the workbook that you have in front of you. And as part of that, we discuss and hash out just what we think the main things that we want our takeaways to be. And that is how we compose that list. It's the bottom half of your page for Colossians and Philemon's. And as I set out to write my talk, I realized that that was my outline beautifully provided for me. So let's dive right in to theme one. First, Christ is preeminent in all of creation, and it is through him and to him all things are reconciled. So I've mentioned a few times that Paul wrote the book of Colossians to warn against a heresy that was popularized around Colossae. In doing so, though, he used an interesting tactic because he didn't start out by detailing this false philosophy or telling them you should be on guard and, and warned against this. But rather, after his initial greeting, where he commends them on their faith in Jesus and even details how he is praying for them, he reminds the Colossians just who Jesus is and all that he did. And he does this in a poem, or some I read even called it a hymn, which I particularly liked. And in this hymn, Paul communicates two key things that kind of become a foundation for the rest of the whole book. Those things are Christ's role in creation and Christ's role in reconciliation. In the hymn, Jesus is called the firstborn of creation, which simply tells of his status or preeminence over creation. He is the ultimate. He shares the very image of God. Through him and for him, all things were created. 
to say in this, these short verses that there's a lot to unpack theologically is a great understatement. There's so much there. He is being identified as one with, the God of the, with God, the creator of all things. But there's more. Because in addition to his preeminence in creation, he's the head of a new creation. The body, the church, his people. This body is a new creation only made possible by his death and resurrection. So not only is he called the firstborn of creation, but he's the firstborn from the dead. Things are not only created through him, but they are reconciled through him. And that means the Colossians too. That means us. Where they were once alienated from Christ, Paul says, Christ has now reconciled them to himself. Christ and Christ alone, he is supreme. Two, Christ's redemptive work has saved a people who are made alive, forgiven, and participating in kingdom work, which often includes suffering as he suffered. Paul lays out for the Colossians their place in this new creation. They're made alive through Christ. Where They were once dead in sin. Now he has made them alive together with him. His work on the cross allows them to be presented blameless before him, forgiven and above reproach. The tr- that is the truth that they have to root themselves to, and Christ will build them up. But they are alive, after all, and part of a body. And a body works together to accomplish tasks. And the task of the church is kingdom work. Paul turns to his own story. He gets a little autobiographical, and he uses his story to demonstrate what kingdom work could look like. Paul proclaims Christ's death and resurrection over and over. But he also uses words like toil and struggle to describe his ministry. Yet in his toil and his struggle, Paul says he rejoices. How? Why? Because when Paul is suffering for the sake of the gospel, he is participating in Christ's sufferings. Now let's be clear on something. Paul's suffering cannot reconcile anyone to God. Only Christ can do that. But God can use Paul's suffering to benefit the church, the body, the new creation. Colossians 4.3 tells us that Paul was imprisoned for declaring the mystery of Christ. Yet it was during Paul's imprisonment that he penned the very letters that we're about to study. Imprisonment did not stop the spread of the gospel. God used it. That is reason to rejoice and praise God. And like Paul, all believers might one day suffer for the cause of Christ. Our suffering might not look like imprisonment in a foreign country. It could, but not necessarily. For most of us, it's probably going to look more like ridicule, ostracism, or even personal loss for standing up against empty deceits and philosophies. Even when those empty deceits and philosophies are being presented by someone claiming to be a believer. But rejoice, the power of God is at work in you. And that leads us to our third uh, theme. Believers are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ and are therefore enabled to live for him, taking captive empty philosophies and putting to death earthly desires. It's in chapter 2 that Paul gets to the motivation behind his letter, those philosophies and deceit. After reminding the Colossians of the truth to which they should hold fast, 
Remember, Christ is preeminent and supreme over all creation, and it is only through him that we are reconciled. Now he reminds them that Christ is sufficient. There's no need for anything else. Paul doesn't call out that specific heresy, but he does mention some characteristics of it. First, he calls out a worship of or devotion to elemental spirits of the world. Second is the belief that you need to fulfill all the feasts and laws in the Torah. Now, these two pressures, whether they came from two different places or one, we don't know. But Paul provides an answer to both. As for the elemental spirits of the world, spirits or beings, or really anything worshipped in this very polyistic society, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.15 that Christ has disarmed them. He has put them to shame and triumphed over them. And lest you think that this is not a concern of ours today, you only have to look to social media, our television shows, movies, our music, or really any mainstream media outlet to recognize that New Age, spiritualism, and forms of the occult, they're actually on the rise, especially with some of our younger generation. There are even churches in our country and around the globe calling themselves evangelical while adhering to New Age beliefs and practices. And Paul is adamant that we say, no, Christ put them to shame. And speaking of those pressures to fulfill all the Jewish law, well, we may not have that exact situation, but that's just another form of legalism. And we can relate to that. The idea that our faith isn't enough, that we need to practice X, Y, Z, or act a certain way, or do certain things. We absolutely can relate to that. So what does Paul say here? Well, with regard to the law, Paul says in Colossians 2.17, the substance belongs to Christ. Our fulfillment of the law does nothing to guarantee our salvation. But his fulfillment of the law absolutely does. Our obedience isn't an obligation in order to meet the demands of salvation. Rather, it's an outpouring of the love and the gratitude that we feel for what, all that he has done to accomplish our salvation. So how are the Colossians, or how are we supposed to resist these pressures? Let's go back to that foundation that Paul laid at the beginning of the letter. Because there he tells us of the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He starts the letter telling us of the supremacy of Christ, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in chapter 1, verse 19. And then just a few verses later, he tells us that that very spirit of the Supreme One, it dwells in us. His power allows us to withstand the pressures of false ideologies and live for the one who created us, reconciled us, and empowered us, empowers us. And lastly, theme four, as God's chosen people, believers are called to pursue transformed relationships with everyone, bearing with one another in love. So Paul ends this letter with some practicality. And if you're like me, you love it when someone gives you some practical steps to follow. After all this deep, rich theology, which is there in this small little book, Paul tells us how to live in that reality. He tells us we're to set our minds on things above. And that doesn't mean that we walk around only thinking about heaven. 
but rather what he's saying is that we need to live on earth as this new creation in Christ. And then Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we live in the present the way we one day will be. Okay, so what does this look like? Well, he gives us some specifics. Remember, his audience is living in the Roman Empire in the first century, which was a very authoritarian culture. And he doesn't take them, tell them to take to the streets and upend everything, just destroying it all and replacing it with something new. But what he does say is almost more revolutionary. Because what Paul says is as part of this new creation, within the body of believers, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free. And therefore, they should treat each other accordingly. They are to live this out within their own sphere. Wives, willingly submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. I mean, that was a stark contrast to what was seen in the day. Knowing that slavery existed in first century Rome, Paul tells believers who are slaves to honor their earthly masters, but not to please them, but because knowing that in doing so, they are honoring their real master, their heavenly master, Jesus. And Paul also speaks to believers who might own slaves. If you have slaves, treat them justly and fair because you too have a master in heaven. As believers, we all submit to the creator of this world. So in everything we do, do it for the Lord. I can only imagine that a first century household that lived this out looked very different from the majority of the day. And I can imagine it because I know when our households live that way, we look different from the other households around us. And that is where this little letter of Philemon comes in. In the letter of Philemon, Paul gives Philemon a specific opportunity to live out exactly what he just outlined in Colossians. I mentioned earlier that we know that Philemon was a Colossian, but we know this because of a man named Onesimus. Colossians 4.9 tells us that Tychicus, remember he's the one that delivered the letters, he's accompanied by a man named Onesimus. And Paul says, Onesimus is one of you, meaning Onesimus is a Colossian. But then in the book of Philemon, we learn that Onesimus is a slave. And in fact, he's the slave of Philemon himself. Paul's letter to Philemon is an appeal on behalf of Onesimus. You see, Onesimus had left Philemon. Paul's letter hints that Onesimus may have wronged Philemon in some way. And this leads most to believe that he ran away, perhaps fearing what would have been under Roman law, rightful punishment. But in his running away, he encountered Paul. Many believe that he even sought Paul out for help. And while there, Onesimus became a believer. Paul argues that this changes the dynamic of Philemon's relationship to Onesimus. In verse 16, Paul asks Philemon to take Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. He bases this appeal on the idea that Philemon and Onesimus share in the gift of faith in Jesus. Where Onesimus was once a slave, now in Christ Jesus, he's a brother. This is an opportunity for Philemon to live out exactly what Paul just wrote in his letter to the Colossians. 
Paul goes even further to say, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. Does that sound like a mediator you might know? This is revolutionary, to not only forgive a slave, but to welcome him back as a beloved brother, because in Christ, that's exactly what he is. So Colossians and Philemon, they're two, Philemon, sorry, we've had discussions on how to pronounce that. Colossians and Philemon, they're two small books. Colossians is four chapters. Philemon at 25 verses, I'm pretty sure, is the smallest letter of Paul's that we have. But they are so rich in theology and application. So I pray that you don't just rush through this, that you really take the time to kind of soak in and see what the Holy Spirit reveals to you. But in all of this, we must remember the truth of the gospel, what, what, who Christ is and what he has done for us. We need to allow that truth to enable us to stand strong and reject anything that deviates, adds to, or contradicts the truth. And we also need to allow that truth to transform our lives, including our relationship with those around us. There's so much to learn in these little letters. May God bless your study. Let's pray. Dear Father, I do thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to come together. I pray that you would empower these women to make it to the end, Lord, that you would help them finish this study well. And I pray that you would use the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to the deep, beautiful truths that Paul gave us, that the Holy Spirit gave Paul, and then Paul penned for us to read today, Lord. It is such a beautiful thing and a gift that we have your word to transform our lives. So I thank you for that, Lord, and I pray that you would be each, with each one of these women as they finish the study in the coming weeks. In Jesus' name we pray.